Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be going through the first 12 verses today, um, sort of. Uh, while you're opening up your Bibles, I can vaguely remember my first sermon uh, that I ever preached. I say vaguely because really, honestly, it, uh, like thinking back that far is a little foggy. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you what my topic was, uh, but I can, I can close my eyes and I can think of, of what it looked like. I can remember the smells of the room and I can also remember the feeling of, of perspiring waterfalls out of my hands. And again, even now I can, like, I feel myself perspiring just thinking about it. That's so weird. Anyway, uh, I, I, so what I was doing, I, I was helping lead a youth group um, after our youth pastor had moved on. Uh, he had departed. Um, but I, but I was a new Christian. I mean, I had been a Christian maybe six months, and uh, I had expressed a, a, a desire to go into ministry, and so my pastor pulled us aside, um, myself and two other friends, and so we were kind of in, in the three of us leading various youth groups. Um, so I was preaching the middle school service that week, and I could glitz it up saying that I carefully weaved my way through the main passage, presented my main topic, and then molded an argument with supporting passages and crafted a superb application. But in reality, that's not what I did. Uh, I fumbled through my passage, I presented the main point and application, and then I tried to find supporting passages that highlighted a similar idea. So what did that result with? Well, um, it resulted with a bunch of the middle schoolers leaving and um, going downstairs uh, so that they could drink what I think, I think their favorite thing was fruit punch, but go, go downstairs and, and drink fruit punch and play dodgeball because that was their favorite game because they were apathetic. Um, and then it also, it also resulted with a handful of the middle schoolers coming up to me to argue with me, to tell me that I had gotten the point of the text wrong. And, and I, I, I really just wanted to, well, I really had been trying to just present what the text said. I wasn't trying to come up with anything new. I was just saying, this, this is what the text says. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how it's highlighted in other places. So they left. They didn't leave the youth group, but they left the room. Um, and I, I, I remember feeling really dejected by it, really hurt by it. Um, but another thing I remember, and actually with great joy, is as I was leaving the room, one of the moms from the youth group um, came up to me and, and thanked me for simply preaching God's word. And I, I realized that's exactly what I had intended to do. All I wanted to do was go bring God's word to God's people. And I, I wanted to do that because God always says what he means. He's always right. And my sin always taints the truth a little. So all I wanted to do was bring the text. So I mentioned this story for a couple reasons as we're going into Matthew chapter 5. Um, our, our text today is the beginning of what's been dubbed the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Now, this wasn't Jesus' first sermon. Uh, we've, we've heard previously in previous chapters that he was already teaching. Um, but in these chapters, what we see is, is Jesus speaking the truth 
plainly and clearly. Uh, This sermon was the first time many of these people had actually come up and probably heard Jesus teach. But what Jesus was doing was he was just proclaiming the truth of his kingdom. Nothing more, nothing less. And we'll be spending the next few weeks uh, going through the Beatitudes together. So today is a bit of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, it's focused primarily on what, where we'll be going as we travel through the Beatitudes themselves. So let's go ahead and read our text together. Um, so Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so... Take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, seeing the crowds. Who are the crowds? Well, covered that actually at the end of chapter 4 last week. I read this verse and I said, pay attention to where it says great crowds. I think I said that. Uh, But chapter 425 says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here's the crowds from a huge region, and they're all coming together, and Jesus, seeing the crowds, goes up to the mountain, and he sits down, and the disciples come up to him. So sitting was common. Teachers usually sat. Uh, Nowadays, we tend to stand when we teach. Why? So that people can see us, honestly. Um, but sitting isn't uncommon either. That's why I have this gigantic stool right here, is so I can still sit and you can still see me, but I tend to stand. I tend to stand because when I sit, I wobble and I play with my chair. Um, so, so when we see in, in verse 1 that he sees the crowd, he goes up and he sits down, but we also see this statement in verse 1, his disciples came to him. So of all the crowds, this huge region, everybody's gathered around him, the disciples are the ones that come up front. Then you see in verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Who's the them? Well, grammatically, the them is actually the disciples. So... um, but, 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 then, but then also, if you turn with me to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, so Jesus finished speaking, 
and the crowds are astonished. But, again, in verse 2, who's he, who's he teaching? Well, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching the ones that are close. But the crowds are overhearing what's being said. So, clearly, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is actually speaking to the disciples, but clearly the crowds are listening. And this is kind of a parenthetical point, but it's actually an implication that I want to bring up because it's, it's very appropriate to how I preach and how, how church should probably be, be, be done for the most part. Because um, if, if Jesus' primary audience was the disciples, but he intended others to hear, then what do we have to say about church? Uh, I, keep, I keep saying this, and I, I really mean it. The church is not a building. It's not a property. So when you go to church, you should probably be thinking of church in terms of the verb gather, because that's what the, that's what the word means. The ecclesia, the fellowship, uh, is, is the gathered congregation. So the church doesn't exist without the congregation gathered. When this building is empty, this is a church building, but it's not the church. Um, I, I, I probably sound like a jerk saying that, especially, like, I say it all the time. Oh, I'm going to go to church. No, wait, I'm going to the church building. I'm the only one there. Uh, drives, used to drive my wife nuts. I don't know if it drives her nuts now. She will probably comment now on whether or not it drives her nuts. Um, so, so this, when, when we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' big sermon, greatest preacher who ever lived, we should probably adopt the same pattern that he had. He went publicly places and taught, but he taught, again, primarily to his disciples. Which means that our worship gathering as a church should be intended for the saints. It should be intended for those who are closest to Jesus, who are seeking after Jesus, who, who want Jesus, who are, in, who are illuminated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go after Jesus. But the crowd should also hear. This is why we as a church should feel free and welcome to invite others to gather, although we can't do it now. But you can, I mean, you could share our sermon, you could share stuff. We want the crowds to hear. Why? Because it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ being expounded and pressed into life. We want people to see and be exposed to true heartfelt worship of God that includes us, the saints, bending our hearts to what he says in his word and bending our voices in praise to him. Like the crowds that had Jesus listening to him, there should be skeptics, there should be doubters, there should be people who are questioning, who are searching for life answers, or just all around confused. But when they come here, when they gather here, they should see us worshiping a visibly invisible God who's so authoritative that we still listen to him. So that's a parenthetical point. It's not actually the point of the passage, but I, I, I want to mention that. Um, so the sermon summary for today is that when Jesus starts off his Sermon on the Mount, we see 
his audience, which as we know now is really the disciples, but also the crowds, being confronted with those who are blessed in God's kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount challenges us to question ourselves and consider how we should be acting as citizens of his kingdom. So speaking of that kingdom, where is it? Um, the, the theologians, this is why I'm grateful for theologians, because they think about stuff long and hard, uh, figuring out how to explain it, uh, sometimes in really huge terms, and sometimes nice and short and concise. Uh, when we talk about Jesus's kingdom, theologians have historically said that it is already, but not yet. I love that phrase, already but not yet. So Jesus' kingdom, has it come or is it coming? Yes, both. Uh, so in, in much of what we're promised in Christ, there's a future tense, right? There's things that we're looking forward to. Uh, I mean, you, that's the, one of the purposes of the book of Revelation is so that we don't lose heart, even though it has a lot of tremendously horrible things for a third of the earth over and over and over again. Uh, it, it's, it's future grace. It's future mercy of God on his people. So we look forward to this future grace of God's kingdom. And most of what we're promised does not happen in full here, but only in part. A good example would be Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what trust is. It's things hoped for and the conviction of their reality and their truth. Even though we don't yet see them, we know. We know that what God promises will happen. And even in this Sermon on the Mount... I mean, we're going to have a time where we actually go through this, but Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we, Jesus says this, pray then like this. Actually, I'm not going to go into why he says pray then like this, but he says pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a, there's a dividing line there saying that the kingdom needs to come and the will needs to be done, future tense, on earth as it is currently in heaven. Give us this day, focusing on the now, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also, past tense, forgiven our debtors. And lead us, future, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, the kingdom, already come or coming? Both. Because right now, we, we really do see in a mirror dimly. But there's going to come a day when this future grace that we read of now becomes present grace. So, focusing back on our text, on the Beatitudes... How do we think about the Beatitudes? Um, first of all, I was taught wrongly, very wrongly on this. At one point, I, I can't tell you who it was that taught me this. I don't think it was my pastor, my first pastor, or my first youth pastor. But when I read of the Beatitudes, there was an extra T in attitude. So it was the Beatitudes, the attitude you're supposed to have. That's what I was taught. 
That is not at all <laughs> what beatitude means. Um, beatitude is actually the Latin version of the Greek makarios. Uh, makarios is translated blessed. Ooh, now we understand why it's blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The, 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 the word, the, the Latin word, beatus, is the same word we get the word beauty from. So, so when we say that, that these are the beatitudes, we're talking about these blessedness. Kind of like when you look at a beautiful painting, you're blessed by, by being in its presence. And makarios also actually just means happy. Happy, delighted, joyous, joyful. So when we read something in like the Christian Standard Bible who translates all these verses saying, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. That's actually true. That's what it means. That's what being blessed means. It means that you are happy with, with this, these. So then when we read the Beatitudes, since we know that again, it's not the Beatitude, it's not the attitude you need to be, it's instead the blessedness of these things. How do we think about them? Are they moral requirements? Are they, as many, uh, many liberal scholars have suggested, their utopian ethics? Are they abilities for only the spiritually elite? Or are they principles of life for the citizens of Jesus' kingdom? Well, they're all principles of life for Jesus' kingdom. So they're not, they're not things that you need to make yourself. They're things that God makes you into. That's a good way of thinking of it. Same thing with the fruit of the Spirit, right? You got, you got, you got uh, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, blah, 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 blah. The, those, those are the fruit of the Spirit's working in you. It's actually the outward expression of what God is doing in you. So even with these, this is, this is what being a kingdom citizen looks like, but it's also what being a kingdom citizen becomes. So with these things, as we go through the Beatitudes, which by the way, if you read some old King James Version Bibles, they actually call them the Beatitudes. So I had that stuck in my head and I couldn't remember why. And so I, I pulled up some old texts and sure enough, it says beatitudes, which really helps me not think of beatitudes, the attitudes you need to be. Anyway, parenthetical side note. Um, these beatitudes are, are principles of life for Jesus's kingdom. So with that, they're actually a call to repentance. Because our heart's desire is actually to demand the antithesis of each one of these. Because our hearts are wicked with sin. I mean, even if you don't want to admit it, I can guarantee that your heart is, is, is yearning for these other things. So just, just to walk through them, and we're going to go through these again the next several weeks slowly, but the first one, Poor in spirit. Who wants to be poor in spirit? We want to be proud. I don't want to be poor. I want to be proud and rich and protect my own kingdom. Why, why, do I have to, why, why do I have to be given some sort of future kingdom? I want to protect the kingdom I got right now. My, my family, my job. 
I want to protect everything that's mine, my car. Those of you who know me know that I don't take super good care of my car because I don't normally care to look at the outside. It's a white car and it's got all these scratches all over it. So me fixing anything aesthetically on it is just, it's just a waste of time. I'll keep the insides good, but the outside I don't really care so much about. I'll maybe wash it every once in a while, which then the last time I tried to wash it, I had a hose explode all over me. So, so uh, I, 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 I don't care so much about, about my car, but there are guys out there who will do anything to wax their car three times a week, who will, who will sacrifice every little thing to make sure that their kingdom looks pretty on the outside. The next one, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning? You kidding me? I want to remain emotionally untouched and resolute because it hurts to mourn. Why would I want to mourn? Or meekness. Meekness, by the way, uh, means gentleness. So, so meekness, no, 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 I don't want to be gentle. I want to be strong-handed and I want to make rewards for myself. I don't want to inherit some future grace. I want, to, I, I want to get it right now. Again, you might not be thinking in these terms, but watch your heart. Just watch, just watch your response to things. And that's the greatest heart check, is when something unexpected happens, how do you respond? You gotta check your heart. I gotta check my heart. I got more than a hundred examples just floating around in the back of my mind how, I, how, how God has graciously revealed to me my sin and my idolatrous uh, thoughts where I'm looking at something to satisfy me instead of God. So move, moving on, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness? No, it's actually a lot quicker and easier to be crooked and cut corners, to rob the government to not pay my taxes properly. Or, if I were a boss, it would be a whole lot easier to kind of skim some off my employees' paychecks and, uh, and give it to myself. You might not do that, but do you cut off the dude that, that uh, is going slow on the freeway? Do you cut in line? Do you cheat? Have you ever cheated somebody in, in a job and Maybe reported your hours five, ten minutes more, because who cares? You know, five, ten minutes over what, what, what you actually worked, that's only a couple pennies. Nobody, nobody's going to miss a couple pennies. What about merciful? I don't want to be merciful. I want to be merciless. I want to be self-focused. I want to be headstrong, and I want to promote how awesome I am. Or pure in heart. I don't want to be pure in heart. I innately prefer the taste of sin. I don't want to see God with my own eyes because it would be too difficult. I like darkness. I feel safe in my sin. Do you? Do you feel safe in your sin? When you think nobody else is watching? What about peacemakers? Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, actually, as any child has ever learned, it is way easier to get what you want when you cause division between mom and dad. Way easier. If you get them to fight, chances are you can just get what you want because they're going to give up. 
whoever's got the stronger argument for satisfying your needs is uh, is probably going to give in, or is probably going to fight till their dying breath. Why would you want to be a peacemaker? And being persecuted and uh, for righteousness's sake, mm, it's actually easier to be liked by everyone. I don't want to be persecuted. Rewards in heaven? No, I want, my, I want my rewards right now. Thank you very much. Let me cash in my inheritance. See, all these things, honestly, are backwards from what our heart's desire acts like and really, honestly, deep inside is. We might have all the words to say that, oh, you know what? I, no, I prefer being poor in spirit because then God supplies my needs. Yeah, he does. But are you really poor in spirit? Are you really humble? No, probably not. I, I, found, I found the most sincere believers to be the ones that, that, uh, that, that they just, they keep their eyes set on Christ. And that's kind of the point here, actually. Um, God is supposed to be the focus of Christians. All of these things are only achievable when we're looking to Christ instead of looking at ourselves. See, if you, if, you would have, if you would have noticed in every single one of those things, I made it about me. <laughs> I made it about Scott and how Scott wants these things. But that's a selfish, self-focused, horrible line of thinking. It just is. So when Jesus gives these beatitudes, and he says that they're blessed, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're happy, they're joyous. That's only going to happen when our focus and our trust is in Jesus alone. Because he is the blessedness of it all. Kingdom of heaven. You want the kingdom of heaven? You got the king. You got the king right there. You want to be comforted? Look to Christ. You want to you, you, you wanna, you wanna inherit the earth? Be gentle instead of strong and warmongering. Because Jesus is better than the earth. So these are attributes of a kingdom citizen. They're attributes that God works in us. They, ha having these things is a heart that's, that's, that's cultivated in trust of God, that's fertilized with God's word and his promises and a constant reminder that what we see here is not all there is. God is visibly invisible. He's, he's backward in comparison to how we want it. In, 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 in these things, we see a very clear way to cultivate true happiness, true blessedness in God. And it's not, it's not by making yourself these things. It's by trusting in the Lord, by not focusing on ourselves and not even just focusing on others. Because that's the other way you could go with this. When, when I said that liberals have made this a utopian ethic list, I mean that. They, they've made it, the, 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 this would be the perfect society. But folks, the perfect society doesn't exist this side of, of God's 
truly consummated and realized kingdom. The perfect society, by the way, needs God because he is perfection. So as we go through this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, not just the Beatitudes, but the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we'll find what we're to believe as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, uh, where, what we are supposed to do as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And also, we're going to be confronted where, where we go wrong as exiles in this world. Because if we're not examining our hearts, if we're not taking the knowledge of what this says and having it trickle down into our heart to, to start welling up in worship and praise of God, then we are absolutely missing the point. A lot of people left the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people denounced Jesus and renounced Jesus. His own disciples left him. The greatest preacher who ever lived had people walk away. So in conclusion, I want to remind you that the kingdom has come. It is already. Jesus coming and preaching God's truth, plain and clear, uh, like he does in the Sermon on the Mount, usher, has ushered in a new age of, of that kingdom. We, uh, right now, are living in a time where the kingdom has come, but we're still looking into the future for that actual full revealing of God's wonderful grace. Kind of like if you're on a road trip and uh, you've reached a checkpoint and, um, you know, you've, you've passed some sort of a mile marker, whatever, whatever that invisible checkpoint is, and, and you're uh, pulling over to get some celebratory ice cream just to stretch your legs. We're in the leg stretching phase. We're, we're, we're celebrating in a way that here in this text, we have a new age being ushered in. And even now, as we live, we're, we're living in a new age that's been ushered in. That we can now look to Jesus directly instead of looking to sacrifices that all point to Christ. But they also point to something that's coming. So as we face the days ahead, saints, have your eyes fixed forward. Forward uh, to, to the days that this contagion is gone and we can gather and we can worship together. We can shake hands. We can hug. We can high five. You can hear my children screaming again from the nursery. Uh, but, but, but look forward to those times because then we can worship Jesus again under the banner of the gospel, the good news of his coming. But more importantly, don't just look forward to that. Look forward to when the full consummation of his kingdom comes. We need to look forward to the day when sin and death and suffering are no more. Listen, over the next couple of weeks, these beatitudes, they're going to take us to places in our hearts that are going to be painful. They're going to have us question ourselves um, in, in, in ways that's kind of like shoving ourselves through a meat grinder. We're going to be kind of like the crowds that gathered around Jesus um, and, uh, teaching his disciples. And we're going to get to listen in on this teaching. We're going to get a, a very public view of what Jesus taught. But we also need to be applying it into our minds and we need to be begging the Holy Spirit to work it into our hearts.
We need to be willing to let this material sink in and hurt us and harm us. Are you willing? Are you willing to go through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? Are you willing to see where your sin lies? Let's pray. God, make us willing. Make us able to receive your word with all the struggles and trials and pains that it's going to represent, not just in this time period, but, but for, forever in our Christian walk. Confront us with your word. Lord, we are your disciples. We want to gather at your feet. We want to hear what you have to say. And if we don't, Lord, give us repentance. May we see your truth declared plainly. Let us have eyes that are illumined by your spirit to delight in what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Though Satan shall buffet, though trials shall come, may it be well with our souls. May Jesus be enough. May his gospel be empowering. Be in, go in peace, saints.